Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of Wikipedia. As with every single episode, I am still Adam Alvin. And of course, today we have a special guest, Sarah Monero, which for those of you who have spent much time in D.C., you very well could know her. She spent uh, time on the House Armed Services Committee. She was the staff director for Strategic Forces Subcommittee. She has worked OSD policy, worked on nuclear and other policy, and now she runs her own consultancy. So if you need some consulting, give Sarah a call. And today, well, before we talk about what we're going to talk about, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be talking about something that's not strictly just space, because I'm usually just known around town as the space nerd, Sarah the space nerd. Yeah, so uh, well, thanks for telling me that because I, you know, I would have just called you Sarah, but now I'll correct myself and call you, you know, Sarah the Space Nerd. So, uh, and just just to let you know, so you know, I've got a twelve-year-old who is a big fan of Naruto and these other anime, and uh, I got I have a ten-year-old daughter who is a Mandalorian in training, and Comic Con was in Kansas City this week. And so for you as a space nerd, you'll probably appreciate that uh, William Riker was here and and we got autographs of, of, you know, was Commander Riker, but now in the new series, Picard, he's Captain Riker. So uh, it's been promoted. He's been promoted. So with that, let's talk a little bit about Acquisition and acquisition reform for the nuclear enterprise, GBSD, and then we'll get into some good old-fashioned discussion of integrated tactical warning and attack assessment. So, Sarah, you've written a few articles, you know, in the in the past year or so, and you talked about the need for acquisition reform for the triad. What is the argument that you're making, and, and what is the challenge that you see? So it's a pretty simple argument, and I tend to think that the best arguments are the simple ones. And really, it's about making sure that we have consistent acquisition authorities across all legs of the triad. So for me, nuclear capabilities, nuclear weapons, right, this is a a really serious weapon system, a super expensive weapon system, very complex across, you know, the three legs. And what we've seen is that for shipbuilding, for the subs, they've allowed, the DOD has allowed multi-year procurement. Um, that has not happened for either the B-21 or for GBSD now called Sentinel. And so the argument is really, why not have consistent acquisition authorities across all legs of the triad? It's good for the weapon systems. It's good for the modernization programs. 
uh, in a time when, quite frankly, we're seeing commodity prices be very kind of all over the place, in a time where you're having really large kind of macroeconomic challenges with supply chain um, and with uh, kind of workforce shortages and, and very clearly in the classified kind of workforce shortages. Um, this is an area where, quite frankly, the DOD doesn't have any risk that can be absorbed into these programs. And to be able to kind of address all of those problems at the really nerdy kind of acquisition level, you need to look at really creative acquisition authorities and really difficult both policy and big P political challenges uh, to making sure that those programs run on time and on schedule. And, and that really does come down to both uh, multi-year procurement and block by contracting. And I don't want to pull this amazing podcast into like <laughs> too deep of like acquisition nerdiness, but I mean, essentially what you're looking to do there is take, you know, procurement contracts that are typically, you know, have a one to three year of um, ordering, but are still, funded kind of every year, funded and budgeted every year, and making sure that you can extend that to a, a two to five year kind of uh, procurement cycle so that you can stabilize prices of supplies, um, that you can achieve kind of an economic ordering quantity, and that you can, um, you know, basically make sure that all of your the costs of your supplies and your labor shortages uh, are all planned for so that there's no gap in the capability or the weapon system. So why, you know, I at, at one point for all the services, and I spent most of my career at the Air Force, and it, when I was at the Air Force Research Institute, we looked for the chief at acquisition. And it seems to be a perennial problem that, Everybody acknowledges, everybody seems to know the solutions, but yet the, the problems persist. And when we have, and, and I've looked at sort of reform cycles, and you'll see a reform cycle, and then there will be second and third order effects, and, and then it's worse than it was before. And I've never quite understood why we can't seem to get this right. And, and I think back to, and, you know, for me as a, guy who spent his career with the services and then for you having spent much of your time on the Hill, I've often like thought about the Darlene Drurian, you know, that, that incident in which, you know, it was the cost was, you know, a, a million or $2. And then to solve a million dollar problem, we, we added a billion dollars worth of additional requirements uh, for acquisition. And so I wonder, how do we get to a point in which we actually have sort of efficient, reasonable acquisition processes that, uh, you know, don't try to solve, because it, it's all about the bad publicity. You know, the Druian thing is you, you, you want to say, hey, we've cracked down on this, this kind of misconduct. But in the end, it, it costs us more. So how do we get to the point where, like the problem you raise, to where we just do those things that are the reasonable, sort of responsible things that actually drive prices down in the long term? Is it is it a legislative problem? Is it are the services? Is it what do we do? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, as you noted, it's one that a lot of people have looked at. And quite frankly, that a lot of people kind of consistently look at, right? Like, <laughs> there's always kind of a study going on about how how we do acquisition reform and, and what that looks like. You know, right now there's a commission on PPBE, right? Yeah. Um, that was congressionally mandated. Um, there's also commissions on kind of uh, nuclear weapons and employment and things like that that are also going on. And quite frankly, um, being on the Hill um, and also working in the Department of Defense, you know, I'm a huge supporter of GAO and GAO reports. And certainly they have very technical um, programmatic reports about, you know, what's going on in the acquisition system. Um, it has never been fixed because it is that challenging, right? It's not that smart people haven't looked at it. I will say that over the past couple of years, the DOD has taken really admirable steps at recognizing that not all acquisition is the same, right? Bulk buying ammunition, which quite frankly is very important right now in the context of supporting Ukraine, is a different acquisition process, right? Than buying, uh, you know, a Sentinel or a B-21 or a space system, or quite frankly, the big kind of challenge du jour has been how the DoD procures um, software and AI analytics and services. And so over the past couple of years, what the DoD has done has taken a really um, in-depth look at taking the very much maligned kind of series 5000 DoD acquisition and building a more flexible, adaptive acquisition framework. And so what it does is it says, look, you know, here here's the standard acquisition process that we all go through. But there's actually a fair amount of flexibility in that. And they broke out kind of six different swim lanes of different kinds of acquisition authorities um, that the programs can tailor themselves into, and they have different um, kinds of timelines and cycles, the different kinds of iterations that they go through, different, um, you know, conceptualizations of whether, you know, it's a hardware program or a software program, while still meeting kind of the rigorous requirements for both programmatic oversight as well as kind of meeting policy objectives. And so um, it hasn't, quite frankly, it's just been pushed out in the past couple of years. It hasn't been really used all that much. You know, a lot of the programs of record that we have are multi-year programs of record. And so you probably won't start to see that downflow um, for a while. Um, but the fact that they, you know, took the time to really identify the different classes besides just the value of sure. the actual contract um, gives me a small amount of optimism. I think the challenge with the nuclear weapons enterprise is, you know, there's a lot of places and a lot of programs that can absorb risk um, that, you know, you can either push to the right or you can look to, um, you know, rescope your requirement, or you could look to, you know, some other kind of non-material solution for. And that is not the case with any of our nuclear weapon systems, right? Uh, I don't know for for any of you guys who know me, for any of you guys who've seen me around town or have had the unlucky experience of having to talk to me, I actually have very large tattoos. 
Um, and uh, I use this as an example because I, I remember going in and, and talking to um, a general in the nuclear weapons enterprise. And I looked at him and I said, look at me. I am a heavily tattooed Asian lady. I know how to absorb some risk. I am comfortable <laughs> absorbing risk. I will tell you that I will never choose to absorb risk in a nuclear weapons program. I will never choose to absorb risk in our nuclear command and control, right? There are acceptable places to absorb risk and these weapon systems and these acquisition systems that feed, you know, the, the weapon systems are not an area where I would choose to absorb risk ever. And so thinking about the acquisition process as it exists now, thinking about how we can build flexibility into it and thinking about how we do all of that in programs um, that may, I mean, quite frankly, all the defense programs have been impacted by both inflation and kind of COVID macroeconomics. Sure and figuring out how to address that in the highest risk programs um, in the programs that you can afford to absorb none of that risk is, you know, a passion project and a plea for, for action. Yeah. Now, one of the other areas, and this sort of leads there, is we were talking before the show started about the integrated tactical warning and attack assessment, the space leg. Of because we we've we did a uh, a podcast with uh, retired General Rick Evans, who was you know he was he's one of the most knowledgeable people about the airborne leg of the of nuclear command and control, and so you as a self-professed space nerd know a lot about the the space leg. And these programs, these big programs, these, you know, because I spent a year at the at the Air Force Research Lab here a couple of years ago, and we were looking at risk to space systems, particularly cyber risk, because this was at Rome and Rome focuses on cyber. And so we were looking at cyber risk and we were looking at, you know, offsets and some other issues, you know, like some of the stuff that uh, Elon Musk is doing with Starlink and what what can that provide? So as you think about these these big, important space-based IR comm systems, what's your take on where we are, where we're going, and what the challenges are with those programs and systems? Yeah, so I am a self-professed space nerd. Um, I spent a lot of time working with kind of space-based ISR, um, and missile warning and things like this and, and thinking about and working with people who do the ITWA mission. Um, super important, uh, super complicated, much like the DOD acquisition system, probably more uh, complicated than it needs to be and more inflexible than it needs to be. Um, the reality is, is that I think there are lots of different now commercial offerings and products that could probably also help on indications and warning signs, uh, certainly pattern recognition. Um, you've got, you know, a burgeoning US domestic synthetic aperture radar um, offering RF mapping, all sorts of different kinds of capabilities that hitherto for were kind of 
government-owned referential architectures. And so what you're seeing now is commercial offerings being able to augment government referential architectures um, at probably a, a lower cost um, and certainly a greater flexibility than the existing and, and possibly projected kind of architectures that we're seeing out there. Um, I think that's all amazing and great. Um, I think it should be integrated where uh, it can be. Um, I think that on uh, with the ITWA mission set specifically, there is kind of, it's kind of a spectrum of, right, like very tactical things and very kind of strategic intelligence kinds of requirements. And I think commercial can help fill and augment, you know, those requirements because quite frankly, what you've seen in the past is you've seen um, DIC handle very exquisite capabilities, and then you see DOD handling very tactical capabilities. And that makes sense and is exactly the way it should be. Quite frankly, commercial can help augment both of those capabilities and create a more holistic picture. And figuring that out, I think, is really interesting and should be accounted for in kind of early warning um systems both on kind of the ISR side uh, and then also looking into, like you mentioned, the comm side as well and making sure, you know, we've had all of these programs that have had very protected comms, uh, both wavelengths and uh, actual satellites, and we will still need those programs of record into the future. Um, but there are different ways to ensure that you achieve those mission capabilities. Uh, Starlink is a great example of that. These proliferated kinds of constellations are a great example of that, where you take that capability and that mission set and you proliferate it across multiple satellites. And so, you know, it complicates the targeting situation uh, because if you take one out, quite frankly, another one's coming up 30 seconds behind it, right? And so, you know, thinking about not just the impact of a counter space uh, like a space weapon, but um, thinking about how you maintain that mission capability throughout that contested environment is something that um, I think both Space Force as well as U.S. commercial industry are starting to think about more. And I think we'll be a better nation for it, uh, both economically and from a defense perspective. Um, so I, I look forward to all of that. I think the other area that commercial has a real potential for offering in is um, at least to the nuclear weapons enterprise in very kind of niche ways is actually uh, kind of AIML analytics and data services there. And this is, uh, you can use this in ways of finding uh, the most uh, efficient com path or the most efficient path for data. Um, you can use kind of the data laking concepts for, again, kind of your pattern recognition uh, on the DOD requirements, your indications and warning on the IC requirements. Um, and in the best case scenarios, what you have with kind of AIML in the context of nuclear command and control is you have uh, AIML basically um, doing what machines do best 
automating kind of the intelligence collection and all of the visualization and doing the pattern recognition to expand the decision space that you give to our uh, national command authorities about what we do in the very unlikely and unfortunate instance where we have to respond to a nuclear attack. And so um, people have been very, have danced around the edges about, you know, does putting AI into a command and control system just mean like Skynet, Terminator, like sure. craziness, like missiles just flying all over the place. Um, and the reality is, is that it doesn't and it doesn't need to. And in the best way possible in its best employment, you can use technologies, new technologies like this to leverage machines to do what machines need to do and let humans deal with the very human kind of responsibilities that they will have when prosecuting a war. Now, before we move on, so you brought up some great topics because uh, uh, you may not remember there was an article called America Needs a Dead Hand that advocated for an AI-based system. And so my, I and another guy, a friend of mine, Curtis McGiffin, we wrote that article a few years ago. And so I, I want to talk more about this because you, you've intrigued me. <laughs> but we first have to take a quick break. So you're listening to Nuclecast. We're on with Sarah Monero, and we will be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. back. We're talking to Sarah Monero. We're talking about, well, we, we've talked about acquisition reform. We've talked a little bit about space, but now we're talking about AIML and nuclear command and control. So this was an unexpected turn to the conversation, but I'm glad you went there. So uh, a few years ago, myself and, and uh, Curtis McGiffin, we wrote this article, America Needs a Dead Hand, that in, in War on the Rocks. And we were roundly criticized for advocating exactly what you just said, you know, for Skynet and it was the end of the world and, you know, the Whopper and, and, and our view was that this, the detect, decide, direct chain is, is condensing further. So we've had these periods, you know, where when it was just bombers, you had hours to decide. And then it was ICBMs, you had 30 minutes. And then with S with SLBMs, you're down to 15 to 18 minutes. And so you're compressing compressing time. And now with low observable cruise missiles and hypersonics, you, you may condense that time even further. And you may not even have the time to respond because you know you absorb uh hits before and then you say, oh geez, we're under attack. And so our idea was that that you embed AIML in 
across the system in discrete and, and you use something called the Swiss cheese model where, you know, Swiss cheese supposedly has holes, but they never go all the way through. And so by virtue of having this system of systems, which is the NC3 system, it's over a hundred plus interlinked systems that, you know, you're not going to have this uh, Skynet type AI, but like you said, each AI ML does a discrete task and does it faster because it's been automated and therefore you are able to compress that time. And then, then it comes to this human decision uh, where, you know, the president says press the button, but the, the challenge that we see is, is guys who have spent our careers inside the nuclear enterprise and inside command and control is that you're generally going to have a president who He's never done a war game because we haven't had a president participate since Ronald Reagan. Uh, it's not like Vladimir Putin, who does participate every year. So he sort of has a sense of what to do. So you have guys who, and they've never run the drills. They've never had to go through black book options. They've never. And so we we feared that that time and decision-making under stress, trying to either get to the bunker trying to get off the ground, whatever it may be, that decisions don't get made. And so we suppose that maybe you should have sit down with the president ahead of time and say, okay, under here's a bunch of situations. What do you want to do in the event of these situations? And then the president has time to think through it, ask advice, and then you program those options in. And either they're automated options or the president instantly says option seven. And so that that uh, senior leader conferencing, which may or may not have time to take place, you know, you, you still have the effects. And so I'm, I'm sort of curious as to your take on our idea, because this is clearly something you're thinking about as well. Yeah, uh, this just went in all sorts of different directions. <laughs> Sorry for taking it here. Uh, if you know me, you know I've got like a lot of things on my mind. And so Lord knows where you'll end up in a conversation with me. Um, look, I I do firmly believe that AIML has a place in uh, a lot of left of launch decisions sure. and a lot of left of launch. So I started as an Intel person and I will tell you that AIML definitely helps Intel analysts. Uh, it helps them fuse data. It helps them bring that. We're bringing down literally petabytes of data um, every day from both national systems and commercial systems that Intel analysts have. So, and they have to like sort through. And, you know, at one point it was an Intel analyst looking at a, at a picture, right? And then we had some computers and quite frankly, you know, where this has all gone has been amazing. And so there was a tremendous amount, even when I started in the Intel world, there was a tremendous amount of literal data that just got either deleted or left on the floor. And now we can mine that, right? And we can, it's just a richer data set, um, both because we have different kinds of phenomena, phenomenologies, we have different kinds of data and, um, and, uh, providers, um, but you can crunch all of that, right? And the machines are good at finding anomalies, doing 
pattern detection, right? They're much quicker than a human brain is at that. So let the machines do that, right? Um, and there's a whole bunch of kind of amazing work that's being done in the Intel community, both at kind of NGA, at NRO, kind of all over the place. That's exactly doing that, is looking at disparate data sets, bringing them in, fusing them, making something actionable. There's another set of kind of AI ML kind of algorithms and applications that you could use that could say, okay, given all of this huge amount of data, right, here are the parameters of the decisions that we could make, you know, um, and then you can spit out like pretty scripted kinds of things. You could also use those algorithms to then run that war game, right, and exercise and bring it back and improve your models and your decision making. Um, there's another set or application for AIML in the NC3 kind of area, and I talked about it, and it's data flow, right? Looking at how good your networks are, making sure that that, quite frankly, thin red line of comms that you got to have all the time is not so thin. Let's thicken that up. Let's think about the most effective way to be able to move these comms or to move, be able to move that data. And again, that's a, kind of a network optimization challenge that AIML is fantastic at and can do at the speed, literally at the speed of light, because that's how quickly these ones and zeros and binary bits are moving. And so there's all sorts of ways that you can apply AIML into an NC3 kind of scenario or use case that does not necessarily obviate, lessen, reduce the very real human decision-making process that is going to happen, right? And in the best case scenarios actually allows an expansion of decision time for those human beings to make those really critical decisions. Because you're right, there will be time constraints. There will be just the sheer overwhelming nature of the decision to be made. None of that should be taken lightly. And if you can give the decision maker that much more time to consider those options and make sure that those options are credible options, um, that they're proportional options, that they're options that are in the best interest of the nation and hopefully in the world, then you should be able to give that time back. Right. And so it's not about cutting. I, it, I don't see a world where the employment of nuclear weapons is hands off. I, I don't, I don't see that being that decision being made and executed by a machine without a human literally in that loop. There are lots of kill webs and kill chains where I think you, you could automate that quite frankly. And, there's probably a human on the loop, but not in the loop, right? Yeah. And there's a distinction to be made in that discussion as well. Um, I think the employment of nuclear weapons is probably always going to be human in the loop. Um, but the question is, how much time do you give that human? And can you give them as much time as possible by using machines to do what machines do best? Yeah, I mean, we're, and as we think forward, and particularly now, as we're looking at not only a, a you know, we, we talk about near peers when we talk about Russia and China, but in the nuclear world, China's or Russia is already superior to the United States. China is rapidly reaching parity. 
North Korea has said they're going to seek parity. And then, you know, if Iran goes nuclear and then we have this proliferation across the Middle East. And my fear is that we're going to see a world in the next 10 years, 15 years, that looks very different from a nuclear perspective. And we have not sort of looked beyond our comfort zone because we're as a status quo power. We just sort of want to stay where we are, but that's not where the world's going. And so how do, you know, sort of like you said, how do we prepare for that? world? Yeah. I mean, I think this is actually an interesting way to kind of pull back the, a thread in the, in the previous couple of discussions that we had. And that is to say that, um, I think when you are dealing with well-intentioned systems that end up being very, very rigid and inflexible, um, they do real harm to innovation and keeping pace with, you know, the reality that we're going to be working in. The DoD Series 5000 system, people have said, is is famously inflexible. The DoD has tried to fix that with their flexible adaptive acquisition framework, and we'll see how that goes. I think the jury's still out on whether that actually works and how effective that will be. But quite frankly, for the DoD to even acknowledge that and then, you know, spend a significant amount of time uh, making those options and those alternative pathways shows that the DoD recognized that their inflexibility was causing real problems and challenges for DoD programs. The same way is what is kind of facing ITWA and the ITWA challenge, because the ITWA challenge has very specific kind of milestones and gateways that are all predicated on this idea of certification and what's a certified system and what's a not certified system. And quite frankly, it's a bunch of hogwash at this point, right? Because there are alternative ways to get multiple phenomenology to figure out what's going on. And this is not to obviate the need for national technical means in this way, because we do need those programs and we will into the future. That will no doubt be an enduring requirement. But if there is other data out there that can be used in this kind of a way, why aren't we looking at them? Are we using this idea of certification as some sort of kind of specious argument about the sanctity of programs of record that have been out there for years and will be out there for years? Why not look at a more tailored kind of approachable way to the certification challenge or to you know the data veracity challenge, which is really what you're looking for here is can you trust the data? Why not just take a step back and instead of saying, well, this isn't a certified system or this is a certified system, why not just look look at the data and say, look, can we trust this data? Yeah. Is this useful to us? If we can, let's figure, even if it's not certified, let's figure out how to get it to people who, who care and who matter. And let's figure that out now. And so in both of these systems, I think you have the perception of real inflexibility, but you also have outside pressures um, that are really driving people to think more creatively and that hopefully are impacting both of those processes for the better. That was a great, a great summary of the challenge that we're facing. But unfortunately, as with every episode of Nuclecast, we have run out of time. So 
that was a that was a great discussion. I'm really glad we shifted topics and went in a new direction because it's a it you know it's one of those things that we've never discussed and is critically important and interesting. And I guarantee you that there are listeners who are just like, who are just they they want a little bit more. And so what we'll do is we'll have you back on another show, and we'll talk more about this in the future. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on Nuclecast. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be a nerd of all flavors today. <laughs> and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. And of course, we'll see you on the next episode. Well, my afterthoughts for our interview with Sarah Monero. First of all, she's a firecracker. I can imagine, uh, you know, I used to spend some time on Capitol Hill, and I can imagine those meetings with her and uh, the general officers and how that went. So that was a, that was one of the things that struck me is uh, that was a great conversation, though. It went in unique directions I didn't anticipate, but I was so glad we went. Uh, she's right about acquisition and, you know, how we need to sort of structure it. And the question is, can we get it done? And then, of course, I enjoyed the discussion on how do we embed AI in the NC3 system? And so, uh, you know, I found it really informative and interesting. I did. I enjoyed it. So hopefully you did, too. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.